to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we travel to a different possible or not-so-possible future scenario, and then we consult experts about how that future might or might not happen. A quick note, this week we say a couple of bad words and we talk a lot about death. It's nothing too out there, but if you don't want to hear any curse words or a lot about dying, you maybe want to skip this one. Okay, let's start in the year 2055. I graduated from law school in the spring, and now I'm working at this NGO and trying to figure out what I really want to do. That's really neat. So, do you know yet? Do I know what? Your date. Oh, no, I don't. Do you? Of course. I sent the paperwork in as soon as I heard about it. I totally don't understand people who don't want to know. I don't think I want to know. Why not? I don't know. It just seems... I don't want it to take over my life. It hasn't taken over my life. I mean, what am I supposed to do with this information? What if it said you were going to die tomorrow? Would you even be on this date? No, probably not. Well, I'm going to die on August 12th, 2096. Oh, wow. So you've got a lot of time. Yeah, I don't really have to start worrying for a couple of years. Does it tell you how you're going to die? No, it can't do that. I guess that's too hard. So when it gets close to August 2094... 2096? Don't steal any years away from me. (laughs) Okay, 2096, I mean. What are you going to do then? Oh, I have it all planned out. I'm giving myself a couple of years to just, like, live like I am now. But on August 12th, 1961, so when I've got 30 years left to live, I'm going to make a big spreadsheet of all the things I really care about. I mean, I could make that now, but I don't feel like I really know what I care about yet. Do I want to get married, have kids? I don't know. But I think in five years I'll know, so I'm going to make a big sheet of all the things I want to do and schedule myself out. So efficient. I think you're teasing me, but yeah, I guess it is efficient. So if I want to have kids, I'll schedule it in. And if I want to go to Thailand and Jamaica and Australia, I'll schedule those in. I've got plenty of time. I would want to know your date before we went on another date. You literally would not go on another date with me without knowing? No. Uh, What if your death date is, like, in a month? What if you die on one of our dates? Well, I'm not getting my date, so I guess this isn't going to work out. I guess not. Everybody is looking for that special someone, the one who fits perfectly into that missing puzzle piece in our lives, the one we'll spend the rest of our lives with, grow old with, someone who will be with you forever. Lots of dating sites match you with people who might entertain you, who might be fun to talk to, who you might even love, but only one site matches you with people that you can really spend your whole life with. Evermore finds matches for you based on personality and longevity, pairing you with partners who can be by your side forever. Everybody deserves a lifetime of love, and Evermore can help you find it. 
Have your love of your whole life. Don't be left behind. Yo, come here. I want to show you something. What? Have you seen these? What is this? You haven't seen these? People are opening up their letters together and filming it. Ooh, that seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Look at this one. What? Oh man, this is really fucked up. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Look at this one. I don't want to watch this. Come on, they're doing it to themselves. Nobody has to get their letter. We never forget the moments that matter most to us. We pin them to our feeds. We share them with everyone we know. And we dream of how to make more of them, no matter how long we've got left. At a yearbook, we can help you build the perfect life with whatever time you have left. A week, a year, a decade, Yearbook is here to make those memories as good as they can be. Our patented data system works in two magical parts. First, our algorithm learns all about you and matches you with trips, classes, programs, and people who are scientifically proven to make you happier. Then, we make sure to schedule those trips in the optimal order based on how much time you have to live. Yearbook. Make the most of your time, no matter how much you have left. Okay, so in this future, you can choose to find out the exact date on which you will die. Now, this is impossible, totally impossible, and I'm not even going to try to come up with some strange pseudoscientific explanation for how this might happen. It's not a thing. Just go with me here. Some of you have asked where all the weird episodes went this season. This is one of them. I wanted to talk about this future because I'm really interested in certainty and uncertainty. So much of the technology that I get pitched all the time as a journalist offers the promise of more information, and what they really seem to be selling is more certainty. What is going to happen? What is going on inside your body? Quantified Self apps say that they'll help you track your habits and your biology so that you can really know what's going on, and you can be certain about this messy, weird, slushy, gross thing that is your body and your insides. But the ultimate uncertainty, the thing that we cannot control no matter how big our quantified self-spreadsheets are, is death. We could all die at any moment, but we don't like to think about it that way. A couple of years ago, my grandfather got sick, and he's been sick since then. It gets a little better, gets a little worse, recently it's gotten a lot worse, and we all kind of know that this is probably the end for him. But even though we all sort of know that, nobody is really prepared for it. Nobody ever talked to him about how he wants to live his final days. Does he want to be in a nursing home? Does he want to be put on life support? Does he want to be resuscitated? And this is a really common problem. It's hard to have those conversations for different 
reasons. You know, one of them is we just don't really know how to do that. We, in the States anyway, we talk a lot about if we're going to die, not when we're going to die. Some people say that it's, you know, bad luck to talk about death, but I've found that talking about it doesn't actually kill you. <laughs> That's Chanel Reynolds. She's the founder of a site called Get Your Shit Together, which helps people get their shit together. Stuff like writing a living will, getting it executed, getting disability insurance, putting together an emergency plan, all that shit that if you are like me, you do not have together. And Chanel launched the site and got involved in this whole thing for pretty much the most awful reason possible. I, I find myself here completely by accident, to be honest. And I mean, that pretty literally, my husband was killed in an accident almost seven years ago. And um, he was hit by a van while he was riding his bicycle. Um, I was at a barbecue with some friends with our five-year-old son and I got a phone call that he'd been in an accident and it was bad um, and I had no idea what was going to happen I had no idea if he was still alive or not but I needed to go to the hospital and got there and he was still alive but just barely and after a week in the ER and the ICU I ended up removing medical support because he was not going to be able to come back either physically or mentally. And because we had had some conversations earlier when our son was born about um, end of life and living wills, I knew that that was not going to be an acceptable quality of life for him. So I did the hardest thing that I think someone can do and just let, let him go. Now, losing your partner to a horrible accident is a lot of people's worst nightmare. But for Chanel, the nightmare just didn't end. There was all of this other stuff that kept happening and making something that's already so terrible even worse. The nightmare just kind of kept going for a long, long time. Not only do you go home and try to tell your child that his papa's body died and he won't be coming home, um, you also... I was also staring at my late husband's phone and I didn't have the password. So in the hospital, I couldn't call his dad. Our wills and our living wills were totally done and waiting for me in my inbox, ready to be signed and notarized. They had been there for six months before the accident happened and they weren't legal. They weren't legally binding. You know, I didn't know how much insurance we had. I didn't know whether we had disability insurance or not. So there were just all these really awful, awful, questions and digging and spending time on the phone with customer service to try to get my cell phone turned back on because it was in his name. Um, so the, the level of suffering and sadness and grief that we experience in our lives is inescapable. But there was this whole level of what I guess I could call optional suffering that happened afterwards that was often the thing that kind of just brought me to my knees. And Chanel just wasn't ready for it. She was young. She thought they had years and years left to plan for death. And then there it was. And she was so unprepared. In the ICU, the, within the first 24 hours of the accident, I was standing there and I said to my friend, oh my God, I don't have my shit together at all. And Chanel realized that if she college educated, English is my first language, extrovert, project manager, 
kind of bossy woman. Didn't have her shit together, then probably a lot of other people also did not have their shit together. And she's right. A huge number of Americans don't have any kind of will or plan for when they will die. More than half of the U.S. adult population doesn't have an estate plan. I didn't even know what an estate plan was until I talked to Chanel. I just always assumed that I have time. I'm young. I'll figure it out later when I get old. When my boyfriend and I adopted a dog last year, one of the questions on the survey that we had to fill out to determine whether we would be fit dog parents was, if you both die, what happens to the dog? I remember that we looked at each other and we just kind of laughed because it seemed so absurd. We're both under 30. Neither of us was going to die anytime soon. But you don't know that. It could happen. And I'm glad we actually did talk about what would happen to our dog because if we died, the last thing I want is for her to wind up back in the shelter that we adopted her from. So a few years after losing her husband, Chanel put up a little WordPress site with some guides to help people do all of the things that she didn't do. Write a living will, get disability insurance, have detailed conversations about what each person wants from their end-of-life care. And if you are having a moment right now where you're thinking, crap, I don't have my shit together, you are not alone. Once Chanel put up the site, it totally took off. I put it out there and then millions and millions of people went to the site and downloaded the forms and and uh, hopefully that means a lot more people have had conversations and there's checklists on kitchen tables and more people have their shit together than before. Now Get Your Shit Together is Chanel's main project and she hopes that you get your shit together. I mean, it should be as easy, frankly, as Ubering a box of puppies to your office, but it's not and nobody knows where to start and people are overwhelmed. And so my hope is that talking about these really important things, we can figure out a way how to do it where it's less overwhelming and help really give people a place to start. So getting back to the theme of the episode, maybe if we all knew the date on which we were going to die, we would be more likely to actually plan for it. Maybe if we all knew our expiration date, we would write our wills and make our plans and just get our shit together. Maybe. But it might also have some less good effects, too. It turns out that psychologists have been looking into what reminders of death do to people for a long time. And what they found is that when you are reminded of your own death, you sort of turn into a monster. Death reminders make us demor- you know, demoralized, hateful, warmongering, proto-fascist, plundering the planet. That's the bad thing. That's Sheldon Solomon. He's a researcher at Skidmore College and one of the leading scientists in a field that has a really cool name. It's called terror management theory. Now, terror management theory basically says that we all live, all of us, all the time, with this underlying rumble of terror beneath the surface. Terror that we are going to die, which, of course, we are at some point. And when we're reminded of death, that terror bubbles up and impacts our behavior in some not-so-great ways. What we found in dozens of experiments is that when you're reminded of your mortality, uh, you like people like yourself a lot better, and you hate people who are different. So one of our first studies, we had Christian participants either think about death or something unpleasant, and then we asked them to evaluate other people who are either Christians or Jews, And in the control condition, the participants didn't differentiate between people as a function of their religion. Uh, But after being reminded of death, they liked uh, Christian people more. 
and Jewish people less. And then like Germans reminded of death, sit closer to people who look German and they sit further away uh, from people who look Turkish. Um, Iranians reminded of death become uh, more supportive of suicide bombers. Uh. And it's not just Christians or Germans or Iranians. They've done tons of these experiments, and no matter who it is, they get the same results. Americans reminded of death uh, become more supportive of the preemptive use of uh, biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons against countries uh, who don't threaten us directly. Their most recent experiment looked at Donald Trump, who will most likely be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. Saying, I will make America great again, and I'm going to build a big fence, and I'm going to bomb the crap out of ISIS. And we just did our first study a few months ago showing that when Americans are reminded of their mortality, uh, they become more supportive of Mr. Trump and more willing to vote for him for president. So in this future, if we know exactly when we're going to die and we think about it all the time, we might turn into horrible people. It makes people hate other people who are different, makes people sit closer to other people uh, that look like them. It increases how much we smoke and drink and watch television and go shopping. Uh, it makes us uncomfortable with our bodies and uh, uh, contemptuous with regard to how we treat the natural environment. Now, there is other research that is a bit more hopeful about this. Death reminders can have all of these pretty horrible side effects, but in some cases they can have positive effects too. So, for example, there are studies showing uh, that when we're reminded of death, even very subtly, uh, we become more generous to charities, although we only do so for those that are helping people in our culture. And then there's other studies with uh, where Folks that are securely attached, when they're reminded of their mortality, they don't hate people who are different. Uh, rather, they become more committed to long-term and stable relationships. And there's certainly no harm uh, in becoming more devoted to one significant other. So some of us will turn into xenophobic, racist, littering jerks. And some of us will turn into charitable, loving partners. And Sheldon says that researchers don't really know who will react which way. I'm going to go with I don't know and probably both. I think that there's <laughs> for some people, I don't think it would change a thing. And, and although if you ask me, uh, uh, like, who, I wouldn't be able to predict. I'd need to think about that. But I, I think that there'd just be other people who wouldn't be able to keep their faces away from the number of minutes and seconds that they have left. And that would become a, a, a preoccupation almost to the point of fetish and that they would just spend too much of their time uh, trying to come up with a way to keep the meter running just a little bit longer. So there is this very real possibility that knowing our death date might turn us into monsters. But even if knowing our death date might have negative consequences, you know that people will want to find out. Some percent of the world will, of course, want to know their death date. So I wondered, in this future, could those of us who want to know go to some kind of death therapy before we open our little letter that has our death date on it? I mean, to prepare us for the information and maybe reduce some of these terrible things that thinking about our own death can do? 
to be silly, if I could answer that one, I'd be chugging rum out of a coconut on the beach with my Nobel <laughs> Prize, because uh, I, I do, I think that's a, a high-dollar question. Yeah, I don't see why, in principle, uh, that we couldn't adopt from a therapeutic point of view, you know, the kind of existentialist uh, approach. Uh, and so one possibility, if we're just going to let our imaginations run wild, is before you open the envelope, uh, I could see folks uh, pointing out that this need not be seen uh, as a death sentence per se, uh, so much as kind of a, an existential beacon in the night, that knowing precisely uh, how much time one has left uh, under the best of circumstances may uh, allow us to, to literally just get the most out of the days that we have. But Sheldon's research and all of the research on terror management theory relies on subtle reminders of death. We interview them in front of a funeral parlor as opposed to 100 meters to either side, or we flash the word death on a computer screen 28 milliseconds so fast that you can't even see it. Which isn't quite the same thing as actually knowing consciously all the time that you are going to die. So I wanted to talk to someone who really really knows that feeling. When we come back, we're going to talk to a woman who has spent the last eight years or so basically living in the shadow of death. And we're also going to talk about all of the ways that our world might change if we lived with our death dates hanging over our heads all the time. So stick around. We'll be right back in a minute. So we've been talking about a future where you can choose to know when you are going to die. And this is an impossible question, really, but it's one that I like because it gets at questions about how much you really want to know. How certain do you really want to be about your life and the end of your life? And to think about what a world full of future death dates might look like, I called this guy. I'm going to send you every adjective from the word dogs every day in email. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, I'm Ryan North. I'm one of the co-editors on the book Machine of Death, about a, about a machine that tells you how you're going to die, not when. And I also write the online comic Dinosaur Comics, and I write the comic The Beautiful Squirrel Girl for Marvel Comics. So back in 2005, Ryan published an episode of Dinosaur Comics that outlined the premise of the machine of death. You go to the machine, it takes a blood sample, and it spits out a card that tells you how you're going to die. Maybe it says poisoned apple or drowned or old age. Ryan thought it would just be kind of a one-off joke, but he had some friends who started exploring these little short stories based on this premise. And eventually they opened up the idea to general submissions, and they got thousands of stories. So far, there have been two Machine of Death anthologies, each full of stories about what happens when you know how you will die. And they're really fun. I totally recommend them. So I called Ryan because our scenario is kind of similar, except for us, you know when you'll die and not how. And Ryan's first thought about the death date was, I'm going to say, pretty morbid. Well, when, when you mentioned the idea to me, the first thing I thought of is, well, this, this changes society in a huge way. Because like, if you're, if you're maybe within six months of your death date even, do you want to get in a flight with someone who's going to die in the next six months? You're not going to get in a flight with someone who's dying that day. No one will want to be around you, right? Which yeah. means your life is changing as you get closer and closer to your death date because fewer and fewer people want to be associated with you. Or like, what if a bunch of people, you realize that you, your neighbor, and everyone in the same city has the same day or the same month? That's concerning. <laughs> you probably want to get out of Dodge. 
In a lot of the stories in the Machine of Death books, there is a built-in age limit. You can't be tested until you're 16 or 18 or something. But that might be a little different if the machine tells you when. I mean, if your kid is going to die at 2, do you want to know that? Or do you not want to know that? But how awful. Like, how awful. Yeah. How awful get your baby tested after birth and be like, oh, two years. Wow. Like, what do you, what do, you do after that? How do you not spend the next two years just being torn apart? I can imagine a future where some schools require death date testing and won't take kids who are going to die that year. I mean, nobody wants a kid dying at their school. But Ryan also says that people could use their death dates to their advantage. Let's say you have, you get, even forget the diagnosis, you have a death prediction that's six months from now. And you think, okay, I'm going to die in six months, which means you're not going to die for the next five months and 30, 29 days. So you could be like a firefighter with absolute security in your well-being. You could do all this stuff that's dangerous knowing that you're going to be fine. <laughs> or at least you're not going to die. You might get horribly injured, but you'll linger on for at least another six months. <laughs> or maybe we could assemble armies full of basically invincible people. There was a great story in the second book about how the government making this sort of elite uh, squad of invincibles who have these death cards that are like, really peaceful, like in bed, surrounded by loved ones. So they can send these guys into battle and know they're going to be fine. Like they can't be killed in battle because their death cards are so nice and so pleasant. And I feel like the same with time. Like if you have, how do you fight wars? How do you fight battles? If you can make a a troop of people who are going to die 60 years from now, like they're going to roll over you. You can't stop them. Unless you invent a weapon that paralyzes people for 60 years and then you remove that advantage. (laughs) And Ryan thought of something that I had not even considered. People trying to cheat their death dates. You wouldn't be like on a plane trying to rush the date line, staying just oh, ahead of that date for as long as possible. I had not even thought of that. That's genius. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about escaping death. <laughs> you have yeah. to rules lawyer your way out of it. It's the only way. Yeah, that just seemed, but it seems it's like futile ultimately, right? Like... You eventually get Is there. it though? Like if, let's say I'm going to die 10 years from now, I have a month, a day, and a year. And I'm like, I don't want to die 10 years from now. I'd rather die 60 years from now. If I can, you know, spend those 10 years getting elected president of America and then pushing through a law that changes the calendar from the Gregorian calendar to the Ryan Northian <laughs> calendar, <laughs> that changes the years minus 60. <laughs> I might be able to escape it. Oh, my God. Because you you rules lawyer it, right? You try to find the loopholes and drive a truck through them. And if we can really test people for their death dates, why not animals? Why not your dog or cat or a plant or a tree? Maybe we could use this to predict extinctions and see how bad climate change is really going to be. Oh, we can test plants. Now we're crazy. (laughs) I mean, this is already a ridiculous idea. (laughs) Because now we're testing all life, which means we have a test for whether or not something is alive. That's true. And we can answer some questions about long-lived species like those, those trees that live a thousand years and stuff like that. Which means if you have trees that live thousands of years, which we do, and you see those are all dying at a certain date in the future, which they might, you know Earth is screwed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're way out in the woods here, but hey, you asked for a weird episode. So here we are, testing trees for their death date. Anyway, 
It's easy for us to sit here and ponder what it might be like to really know when you're going to die. Like it's this fun thought experiment. But as I was thinking about this episode, I realized that for some people, this is not really a fun thought experiment. It is their life. There are people living right now with what is essentially an expiration date. And I wanted to talk to someone who really knows what it's like to live thinking about death all the time. I'm trying to think, like, how do I... The story is so weird and it's so complicated. Um, this is Eva Hagberg-Fisher. So right now I am I'm 33. I live in Berkeley. I'm married. I am uh, finishing a PhD at UC Berkeley in architectural history, sort of history, English, um, interdisciplinary things. Eva is also the author of a memoir on brain disease and love called It's All in Your Head, and she writes a column for EverUp about medicine and feelings called How to Go to the Doctor. And Eva's medical story is complicated. Let's go with complicated. A lot has happened to her in the past eight years, and we're only going to cover some of the story, and we're going to skip a lot of parts. I just want to give you a sense of what she's gone through before we talk about her feelings about knowing her death date. So in 2008, Eva was 25, and she was living in New York City. She was working as an architecture critic, and she started feeling kind of weird all the time. I started noticing that I was dizzy a lot of the time, and I was really thirsty all the time. Eventually, she went to the doctor, and they ran a test, and it came back negative. And the doctor basically said, I'm not sure what's wrong with you, but go to this vestibular rehab place. They'll help you work on your balance. Eva thought that maybe her dizziness was just due to stress, and so she actually moved away from New York City to see if that would help. And I basically spent a year, and I basically rode my bike and ate a lot of Oreos and kind of had this, you know, like, palate-cleansing year. In Portland, she applied for grad school, and in 2010, she moved to Berkeley to start her Ph.D., but pretty much as soon as she got to grad school, things got a lot worse. I had this, like, really unusual anxiety and really kind of obsessive thoughts, obsessive fears. It was really, really strange. It was really unusual. A doctor put her on anti-anxiety medication, which didn't really help. Um, Which made my symptoms which included fear and also included dizziness, kind of easier to accept, but it didn't make them go away. So I'm, I'm in this sort of like weird, half-numbed-out state. And over the course of about a year and a half, things were just getting worse and worse and worse for Eva. She would wake up covered in sweat. She struggled to focus on anything. She had these sudden mood swings and temper tantrums, and she would throw glasses around her kitchen, and she would forget her students' names. Like, things stopped kind of making sense physically, and they also stopped making sense mentally. And she wound up fainting in the hallway of her yoga studio. And after an EKG, she was diagnosed with something called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Which basically can kill you at, at any—I mean, it causes, and this is a clinical term, sudden death. So they tell her, you've got this thing, make an appointment with cardiology. Get yourself checked out. And the next day, I had, an, I had an appointment like the following week. The next day, I woke up. I couldn't walk. I was really confused. I tried to go to the pharmacy to pick something up. I, I couldn't figure out if I should like drop off the prescription or pick it up first. You know, like that didn't make sense to me. Um, so I went to the ER. Eva spent the next six days at the hospital at UCSF where nobody could figure out what was going on with her. She made some phone calls to friends and parents of friends and pushed for more tests. And eventually, they found something. He comes in three or four hours later, and he's like, um, there's a finding. 
and shows me on the screen this lesion behind my pituitary that had actually hemorrhaged. And the doctors thought that there was a tumor growing in her brain. They just couldn't see it. So she had brain surgery to find the tumor, but they didn't find anything. And a couple of days after the surgery, Eva got really sick again. I was just throwing up like every three to five minutes. I remember really clearly paramedics coming, getting strapped into a gurney, and being driven across the bridge. And I found out later that I was, I was really, really close to dying. I was going into a low sodium coma, and I was like two sodium points above brainstem death. I mean, it's like completely horrifying. And in the moment, I remember lying in the ambulance and looking out the back windows and crossing, you know, over the bridge from Berkeley and driving through San Francisco and thinking, this is going to be the last thing that I ever see. And in that moment, I was completely calm. I mean, this calm that that people sort of talk about did happen. And the time I thought that I was calm because I was like really tough and good at dealing with this. And I, I recognize now like my brain was shutting down. We're going to fast forward here a little bit because this is really just the very beginning of years of medical confusion and tests and doctors. Since then, Eva's been diagnosed and undiagnosed with uterine cancer, a brain tumor, uterine cancer again, chronic fatigue syndrome, mold illness, brain cancer again, histamine intolerance. The list goes on and on and on. At some point in there, she was re-diagnosed with Wolf Parkinson's white and had heart surgery to treat that. She got married. She got better. And then she got sick again. She moved to Sedona to escape what she thought was a mold allergy, and that didn't work, so she moved back to California. Eventually, she was diagnosed with something called mast cell activation syndrome, which is an immune disorder where certain cells release too many chemicals. Now, if you're confused at this point, it's okay. It's confusing, and this is an extremely condensed version of her story. She does have a memoir. If you want to read the rest of it, you should totally do that. I'll put a link in the show notes. But the point of telling you all of this is to make it very clear that Eva really knows what it's like to live thinking about her own death kind of all the time. And she says that after all of this, she gets a little tired of what-if thought experiments about death kind of like the one that we're conducting on this very episode. Actually knowing that you could die at any moment is very, very, very different from abstractly believing that you know that you could die at any moment. You know, so a lot of people will say, a lot of people said as a way of trying to comfort me, like, we're we're all dying. We could all die at any moment. And I found this very, very hard to swallow because as much as I had, like, tried to live as though I were dying, you know, in some way, like, okay, let me pretend that this is my, you know, last year, what's really important to me, you know, these kind of like self-improvement exercises that, that we do and, and very, or we do, I don't know, I've done, I've seen people do, um, you know, or this sort of obsession with movies, like the bucket list or last holiday, like, let's, pre- let's pretend that we're going to die soon. And like, oh, I've always wanted to open a bakery. Like, I've, I've always wanted, you know, butterflies are really beautiful. And that was not my experience. I was not like, you know, I've always wanted to write a novel. I was like, this is fucking horrible. This is the scariest thing I've ever been through. And I'm so scared to die that I don't have the mental bandwidth to like suddenly start reading books about butterflies or to take a really nice vacation. So there's this idea that knowing our death date is going to free us up to do fun things and be our best selves. And she says that that just is not what happened to her. 
She was just scared all the time. And this is the biggest thing that I got from Eva, really, is that, you know, we can talk about, oh, what would it be like to know when we were going to die? Do you want to know? I don't think I want to know. But we can't really feel the abject terror that she felt when truly faced with her own death. And realizing that I had not understood the word terror before that happened. Like, I had been scared, but I hadn't been terrified. And I would just... The things that would set me off would inevitably be some kind of, like, social slight or something. And then I would become completely hysterical and hyperventilate. And and the way... I mean, it's sort of this, like, titrating up of, of awareness. And I think that I could... I, I was not able emotionally and intellectually to really grapple with what was happening, that it kind of came out in these like other ways. And living with death so close by and living with death so close by for so long has really changed her in ways that it might change many of us if we lived in a world where we could, in fact, know our death dates. Eva thinks about death all the time. I think about my death now every single day, at least once. I realize that most people don't constantly wonder who is going to be next, which I kind of wonder a lot. Um, you know, I think about my friends and I'm like, who, who's going to die? And my therapist has told me this is not like, quote unquote, normal, normal thoughts. Um, I think it might be normal thoughts that we just don't talk about, but I don't know. But it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Eva says that she probably would cut some of the suffering, but she would choose every plot twist in her life. And and it's also, I mean, the other thing that I want to say is, um, and then I'll, I'll let you go, but I realize I've been like pretty kind of dark this whole time. Um, <laughs> but but really, like my experience of joy changed tremendously. And my my appreciation for joy and the way in which I sought out joy and sought out laughter. And like some days it was as simple as like, I'm going to go on BuzzFeed and click on their LOL and keep looking until something actually makes me LOL. Um, And so this experience has also really given me a richness of experiencing ordinary life and also like a drive towards joy, as much as a drive towards um, like achievement or, you know, uh, selling four billion copies of my book or whatever. Um, and so that is a really important piece of this is that like the flip side of, of being so available for the darkness is really being just as available for all of the lightness and the beauty that comes with life. So that is a really important piece. Um, and that doesn't feel like, Oh, I realize butterflies are pretty. It feels like a much deeper, like, Oh, Oh, I'm, I'm laughing right now. Like every time I find myself hysterically laughing, I, I like call attention to it in my, in my head. I'm like, I am laughing. I am experiencing laughter and joy and this is beautiful and I'm going to like soak it up because I know so deeply it's opposite. Um, and so it's just, you know, the lows are lower and the highs are higher. Um, and, and the highs are really beautiful. At the end of every interview I did for this episode, I asked the same question. If you had the choice to find out your death date, would you? Would you want to know? And for Eva, I totally thought I knew what she would say. 
Because one of the things that Eva has written about and we talked about a lot was how hard it was to spend years not really knowing what she had and how bad it was. She had all these cancer scares, but never cancer. She had these mysterious symptoms that nobody could ever figure out. And it was so uncertain. I have this um, iPhone app that's like my chart, right? And I would look at my tumor marker and I would look at it just steadily rising, which it did for six months. It just kept rising. And basically, incremental rise is really indicative of a malignancy growing. And I would feel this kind of relief that, like, soon I could just kind of give up. And I wouldn't have to constantly question myself and question my symptoms and wonder if I was exaggerating or wonder if I could try harder. So I thought that after all of these years of being unmoored, totally unsure of what was coming, Eva, of all people, would want the certainty of a death date to really know, to know exactly when she would die. But she said no, she wouldn't. What she realized after all of this is that data, numbers, certainty, they might seem like they could comfort you, but they can't, at least not for her. One of the biggest lessons that I learned was that I had, I had believed that information was God in a way. Um, and I am not religious, so I use that as a, as a nonspecific term. And so getting back to this original sort of question of like, do you want to know and how much does that help? Like I believed that if I had enough information, I would feel comfort because what I was really looking for was comfort. And I kept thinking, if I just know where I stand, then I can relax. So if I imagine having been through the last couple of years and having known for certain what was going to happen or, or when I was going to die... I think that that's kind of like a false, it's like a, it's like a false kind of higher power. It's a false like decree because it isn't, it isn't actually comforting because I had these days where I, where I knew there is an X percent chance that I will die on that day. And as much as I try to push my doctors for certainty and for giving me these percentages and for like, okay, how much more dangerous do you think it is? And what is the likelihood that I'm going to die of sudden death before this surgery? And even with as much information as they gave me, like that was never comforting. But Eva was actually the only one who said that she wouldn't want to know. I was really thinking that I might have almost gotten through the conversation with you without having to answer that question. <laughs> um... Oh, well, I have, in general, kind of an impulsivity issue. So I don't know that I would be able to restrain myself from doing it, to be honest. Um, I don't know that I would want to know for me, necessarily, because I know things can... Nothing... You can't assume anything, right? But I am a single parent of a 12-year-old kid, and... Losing a parent is awful. Losing both of your parents, I don't know what that would be like, and I'm glad that I don't know, or at least when my parents die, I'm already an adult. So I think just to be either A, reassured, or B, to start really getting my, start like fucking planning really hardcore for my kid, and um, I would feel obligated to find out. I don't know that I'd be happy about it, and I don't know that I would on my own if I wasn't a parent. I don't think I would. I think I would just, you know, tra-la-la it for as many days as I get. 
Uh, okay, so to be silly, uh, because we're indulging ourselves, I would choose both, but I know you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have it both ways. So what what I would like to think is that I would have the fortitude to just say, you know what, uh, I don't want to know. Uh, uh, because, um, you know, I like the idea in principle that we should live each day. You know, the, the may sound trite, but the idea of living each day as if it were our last. And in so doing, get the best out of every moment. On the other hand, I must confess, I'd probably be sneaking a peek just out of curiosity. I would, I'd be the first in line to find out, I think. Really? For personal information, because you know, like, oh, I've, maybe I'm going to live, how old am I now? I'm 36. So maybe I live to be 37, maybe I live to be 80. And if I live to be 37, I would like to know about that. <laughs> you got some stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. For instance, I have some deadlines in 2018. I could ignore those deadlines. <laughs> like, that sorry, that fun. book's not coming. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the advance. I got to go. About that. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this, honestly. I don't have kids. I don't really have any big things in my life that would make finding out my death date a responsible choice, like it is for Chanel. If I die, my partner will take care of our dog and people will be sad, I hope. But I'm not leaving any huge holes unfilled. So I kind of wish that I could be the kind of person who would opt to not know. But I also know that I'm a reporter and I really, really hate not knowing things. So I would probably give in to that impulse eventually. I just, I don't think I could resist. I couldn't either because it's like, oh, I want to live at least one more minute than you, you poor bastard. <laughs> you? Would you want to know your death date? Could you resist looking? And once you found out, how would you react? Would you try to test the prediction? Would you try to become the ruler of the world to change the calendar so that your death date never came? Tell me. I'm dying to know. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Send us a voice memo at info at flashforwardpod.com. Flash Forward is supported in part by patrons who donate money on Patreon. Hello, patrons. You are the best. This Friday, patrons will get the full interview that I did with Ryan North for this episode. It's really fun and weird and surprising, and a lot of it didn't make it into the episode. So if you like what you heard from him, go to patreon.com slash become a patron, and you will get that whole thing in your inbox on Friday. Patrons also get transcripts, a weekly newsletter full of links and updates to past futures, and behind-the-scenes stuff about the show. So go do that. It keeps the show going. Seriously, I thank you. Okay, that's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. Special thanks this week to Stacey Marie Ishmael, Wendy Hari, Sheila Gagne, Kevin Yatasek, and Jessica Gross. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in this episode, email me there, too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that as well. I've talked about the Patreon page already, so you do that. If you can do that, go do that. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about us. That really, really actually does help. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time, and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs>